Film Situation Podcast. I'm so happy to have our friend John Manna on the Film Situation Podcast today. Welcome, John. Hey, Zeph. I'm really excited to be here uh, as we start the new year off. Yeah, happy 2024. You too. So, I guess, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe about how we first met, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. We met on a short film that I had written and directed. And I think the interesting part of that story is I was 58 years old when I first decided to sit down and write anything. Never worked at all in the film industry. And COVID had just shown its face. And it was early in that 2020 year when I had a lot of free time, as a lot of people did. And I'd always had this creative part of me and was doing some writing on the side. But I think the only people that would have seen any of my writing would be people that hacked my laptop up until then. And yeah, that was it. So I wrote this short little film called 40 Years From Now, and I went out to find folks that might be interested in helping me make the film. And on the internet, met and hired Jeffrey Duncanson, who was going to be hired as a gaffer. He turned out doing a lot more on my film than that. But uh, he, he said to me, hey, I, I got a friend that uh, I do some work with in the films. He's got some free time and Zeph, you offered to come on site and help out any way you could, and that, that's how we met. It was an interesting situation from my perspective because at the time, and I'm still a recording radio film connections mentor, that's how, shout out to Andy Price, who's producing this podcast right now. At the time, I had a film student. I felt like it was the, in the middle of the pandemic. I felt like he wasn't getting enough experience on film sets. And so when Duncanson told me like, Hey, I'm shooting this thing in Westchester. You want to come through? I was like, you know what? That might be a cool opportunity for my film student. And I had been working, even though it was the pandemic, I was still thankfully working a lot. And I was working all weekend on this client shoot and lugging all my gear back in on a Sunday night. And we were supposed to go there, I think on early that Monday morning and film for you for two days. I even booked a hotel up there so we wouldn't have to travel back and forth because the student was coming from out of town. He calls me on a Sunday night and says that my mom is having these, I forgot that I have this dental procedure going on tomorrow. I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Really? A dental procedure? And you just bring this up at me on a Sunday night? He's like, yeah. I hung up the phone. I was like, should I not go because there wasn't any immediate benefit at this point for me going quite was it was a small project and listen I do small projects too so I get it I was like I gave my word that I was going to go and let me just go through with it and make the best of it yeah no and, and it was greatly appreciated and, and when I look back on that experience right how many folks would give any attention to this 58 year old guy who's never done a thing in film it was amazing how the local kind of industry rallied to be part of this short narrative film. I think part of it might have been at that point we were eight or nine months into COVID and uh, everybody, it was a little bit of cabin fever, right? I think I got folks to help me on this film that probably would not have been available uh, a year before or even a year later. So I was just going to say, I'm so glad that I did end up going because I met John and his wonderful family and it was a really great experience just being on that shoot. And I remember I did DIT and I tried to do the best job that I could doing DIT. I was trying to sing sound and picture on set and do all these things. And it was just a great experience. And so I'm so it's one of those things where I'm so happy that I did end up going where at the moment on that Sunday night, when I was lugging all my gear and dead tired and thinking about waking up crazy early the next Monday morning, it was so tempting to just want to sleep in and not 
end up going. But it's one of those things where, yeah, I was exponentially happy that I did. Well, same here. So if you take a look at that was over three years ago, right? And since then, the networking, the relationships that were built on that small little project, not only just you and I, right? And I enjoyed working with you on your latest short film, Westway, and being part of that and doing what I could to return the favor. But folks that worked with us on that film, Simon O'Keefe, who was not only my director of photography, he was also a co-producer. I learned so much from him. And in fact, he should have gotten credit for co-directing that film with me and um, Jeffrey Duncanson. So I learned so much on that project from not only the team, but even the actors that, that came forward. And since then, we've collaborated a bit in a number of projects, and even some of the folks like Kevin Miller that was in my film, you wound up pulling him into a project of yours. It was just incredible how one simple, small little film created a bunch of networking, and I'm here. Shout today. out to Kevin. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, that's what it's about. It's about, um, that's one of the things I love most about film and filmmaking. It's just the collaborative nature of it all, meeting different people. And yeah, it's always uh, a cool new adventure. So John, um, and yeah, and I'm grateful to John for having worked on Westway. Yeah. And, and by the way, Westway, I'm blown away by it and loved and congrats on the Yo Fi Nod Audience Award. Thank and you. Thanks for sharing the link with me because I've got a little party tonight and we're going to be teeing it up for the family. Nice, um, man. Exciting stuff. Uh, grateful that you were a part of it. Before we get into this, we're going to have kind of a little bit of a recap episode of just various things that have happened in the film industry in 2023. But before we get into that, John, how did you first get involved in film in the first place? Yeah, I mean, my interest, my love for film, it goes back to probably before I can even remember. So my my father grew up in the Bronx, Arthur Avenue, back in the, the 30s and, and 40s. And he shared stories with me about going to the movies. My father's life, very tough life. He was, he had five sisters. They lived right off of Arthur Avenue. My grandmother worked on a push cart down below selling vegetables. No way. Do you know where on Arthur Avenue your grandfather worked? Yeah, it was just- Where a, he lived, actually? Yeah, right around the corner. I'll get you the exact address. So it was about a half a block off. It wasn't on 187th Street, was it? I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll take a look. Okay. And- when I talked to my dad, because his father wasn't really in the, in, in the scene, his father had come over from Italy along with all my grandparents at different times, but he wasn't really in the scene, so my grandmother had to take care of things. Uh, he, he tells me this story. He would go look for his dad, because his dad was in the town, but he was often drunk. He was often in a flop house, um, and my, my father would find him, go through his pockets, and look for change. And if he could find a quarter in, in my grandfather's pants that were hanging up on the poster of the, the Flophouse, my dad would head off to the theater. And what he probably didn't realize then, but I think he realized when he got older, that was his escape. He went to the theater. He went as often as he could. He'd sneak in the back door if he didn't have the quarter, and he'd stay as long as they'd allow him to stay. And when I was little, I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, He's constantly having the old movies on TV, and I'm watching everything from Abbott Costello to Godzilla to to Westerns, and that was what we had in common, right? The, the storytelling and the love for storytelling. Now, he's been long gone, right? And I think that at age 58, as I started to think about retiring and started thinking about, hey, there's this thing, COVID, and how much longer do I have here to really do the things I love? That's where the switch went off for me. Tip my hat to my dad for kind of inspiring me. Oh, by the way, I was 12 years old. He took me to see The Exorcist in the theater. Amazing. We're going to get to we're going to get to that as well. And <laughs> by the way, it's funny how things 
come full circle because when I first became a filmmaker, I used to have a welding iron workshop on Arthur Avenue. And at some point I turned it into a film studio and that was right on Arthur Avenue. So oh, that's awesome. My, my, my inception of filmmaking happened on Arthur Avenue as well in the Bronx. Yeah, and I know I'm older than you, but the other joy I had was going to the drive-in theater at the Whitestone, and I saw Planet of the Apes there when I was when it first came out. These are impressions, and again, my father always found a way to get me out to the theater, and hey, it's it stayed with me. Storytelling is is deep rooted there. That's pretty cool. I would have loved to have gone to drive-through movies, see Planet of the Apes. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, but you must have been pretty young when that was. Yeah, I was. I think I was like six. So again, my father didn't worry about my age. It was great. I think today on social media, he'd probably get crucified. I don't know. I think kids are seeing worse things on YouTube. It's just, it's a little bit more buried because they're just in some other part of their house, just watching. It's great. Planet of the Apes seems pretty harmless compared to some of the things that kids are watching nowadays. Great point. Maybe that's why as soon as videos came out um, and I stumbled on John Waters films and was drawn to... um, uh, pink flamingos, and maybe that's where it comes from. I was taught from an early age, hey, you know, there's great stuff out there, and it 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 may be a little crazy, but um, soak it up. All right, cool. So we're gonna we're gonna be talking about a couple of John's favorite movie scenes of all times in the second portion of the podcast. Just wanted to give a little bit of an intro to John. Thank you for that, John, and uh, your love of movies. We'll elaborate even more on that later on. But right now, we're gonna plunge into the 2023 recapping some moments that happened in in film in 2023 and one of them will be what are the highest gro- what were the highest grossing films of 2023 with Barbie being number 1 with a domestic total of 636 million dollars who would have expected that right maybe i guess Mattel and Warner Brothers expected that but international total 805 million with a global total of 1.4 billion for Barbie. Isn't that unbelievable? It is. It's incredible, frankly. And yeah. uh, a new franchise is born, I think. Yeah, it, it seems that way. Super Mario Brothers led at number two, global total of 1.36 billion. Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, 952 global total million. Domestic was 326. International was 625, which that's incredible within itself that the international total was double what the domestic total for Oppenheimer was. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 was at number four with a total global total of $845 million. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse from Sony Pictures in Columbia which was a total of 690 million, which that's interesting too, because Guardians of the Galaxy is Disney, but Spider-Man is Sony Pictures, Columbia. That must have been like, the rights must have been divvied up really early on for Spider-Man. Yep. The Little Mermaid was at number seven, global total of $569.6 million. The domestic total of that was $298 million. International total... 271, so almost even domestic and international on The Little Mermaid. Mission Impossible was at number eight. The Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 from Paramount. Seems like they're expecting a Dead Reckoning Part 2 
by just listening, calling it that. And that was at $567 million. And number nine was Elemental from Pixar and global total of $495 million. And finally, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, with a global total of $476 million. And one thing that strikes me, John, is out of these 10 films, all of them except for Oppenheimer are either, and I guess Elemental, right? So 80% of them are either from some sort of existing franchise or some existing sort of IP, and even Oppenheimer is based on a true story, but it's still original kind of material. Yeah. What do you think of that? Yeah, when, and this ties into when, when I look at the whole state of the theater and all of that, it's a business, right? And large studios and large budget films, right? They're going to need to have a pretty tight business plan that can show that the ROI is almost guaranteed. And I think that's why you'll see it gravitate to the same types of films, the same uh, IP, uh, and having that built-in audience has become more and more critical. Now, Oppenheimer doesn't have that necessarily, but when you look at the director and you look at the star power in that film, certainly... I think you know it was teed up as you know a film that, uh, and again, if it did not have great reviews in the beginning, so if it was just an average film, Oppenheimer would have died out in the vine like some other big films have, but it was strong, right? So it, it the, the the word of mouth got out there, and it's a long film, and it's certainly not going to appeal to everyone in terms of the topic. So I think it's really great to see that film is really third on that list ahead of things like Spider Man and Gardens Guardians of the Galaxy. So I think that's good to see, but yeah. I don't see a lot of, sometimes we have years where we see small films that climb up here into these ranks. This certainly wasn't one of those years. That's true. Yeah, there are no, no small films on this top 10 list for sure. I remember one time I was riding the train, maybe like seven, eight years ago, and there was a guy, he looked like a union guy with an IATSE jacket. We were talking, I was like, oh, you're in the film industry. And I think he was a union gaffer. He was like, yeah, it used to be, the film industry used to be great, and now it's just a bunch of bean counters making <laughs> movies. And that really always struck with me, But when, especially when I see a list of, of films like this. And not to knock these films, but it's not a lot of major risk-taking when some of these films were being developed. Yeah, and that's funny. And you reminded me of something ever since I've met you and I've been out and we've been running around on sets and doing things. When you run into people conversations you strike up with strangers always has amazed me and where those things lead. The examples just on Westway, the short film. With Ray asking you to go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, that's no problem. No, I'm, I'm talking more about people that you meet that you then pull into your world. Westway alone, right? I'd love, And again, I'm flipping the, the, the card here on you, but I'd love you to tell people that violin score, where that came from. And then also the num the first actor in the film where he came from. Sure. So I made a short film called Westway. It's a horror film, possibly a psychological thriller. I don't know. It's it's definitely a, in the vein of older horror films, I would say, like things that I liked, like The Shining or films from Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock was a huge inspiration on Westway. Uh, I'm not trying to claim that it's as great as his, uh, Alfred Hitchcock film, certainly, but certainly was influenced by Hitchcock. One thing when we were developing the film, 
was for, first of all, it was really closely developed with the main actor. His name was Ray Jambalai. I met him a few years ago during the pandemic where we made this really short horror werewolf film called Urban Wolf. Four minutes long. We won a bunch of awards on it and it turned out to be cool. So I kept working with Ray. I made another film with him called Makina. Made a gangster film last year. And yeah, that was a fun experience. So essentially, Westway was de- developed with Ray and written with him in mind. And I said, how, how would you feel about doing a horror film? He's like, yeah, I'd be into it. And then I wrote this film with kind of this working class kind of guy that ends up doing this work in this mansion that's essentially haunted. And really simple premise it, my mentality, my philosophy about film is it's not really just about the premise. It's really just about the execution of these things. Like something could be really simple, but or really complicated, but that doesn't make it really bad or good. It's just how it's executed. And there's definitely layers of complexity because the house is owned by these Swedish people, and they're super mysterious. How he gets the work is mysterious. So there's a lot of mysteries associated with it. And I just thought it would be really cool to have this. Bernard Herman esque score, like in the film. I love Bernard Herman. Just the movie Psycho was really such a inspiration. Just that whole score, like a violin orchestral score. Jeffrey Duncanson was a close collaborator. He's a gaffer that I've worked with, a steady cam operator, cinematographer, really talented guy. And usually I've worked with him as either a steady cam operator or as a gaffer because. I have a regular cinematographer named Alex Gray, who I work with on a regular basis. But Alex was largely unavailable to be the DP for this film. Uh, so he more or less served as a, a consulting producer on it. And so uh, Jeff Duncanson was like a close collaborator with it on from the beginning of the film. And when we were getting the film going, as far as I wrote the script and we're in pre-production, like, it would be so cool to have this violin-esque, like, Bernard Herrmann-esque score. And he was like, yeah, but how are you going to get that? That's going to be really difficult with the whole orchestra and getting, like, violin. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But I, I was like, it doesn't need to be as grand as that. It just needs to be almost like some kid in his room that's, like, playing his heart out on the violin. He was like, yeah, but that would be cool. So but where are you going to find that? I'm like, I know. It's, it's going to be hard to find, but... And it just happened to be the very next night. I'm coming home in New York City, taking the train from Times Square to Grand Central. I exit the, the shuttle train at Grand Central, and I see this young guy. He looked like a young Basquiat, almost just like wildly playing the violin. And I'm like, he's so good. I was like, let me. There was nobody else around, hardly, so I didn't feel too bad interrupting him. I was like, hey, sorry to interrupt, but I was like, would you be interested in doing the score? for a movie and sort of a horror film. And I explained to him, he's like, yeah, I'd be into that. And he gave me his number and I was like, okay, cool. So I talked to Duncanson. I'm like, you're never going to believe this. I like, I texted Duncanson as soon as I got on the train, I said, I found somebody that like was playing the violin and he says he could do the score for the movies. Like, that's amazing. It was just an amazing coincidence because we were talking about it the, the night before on the late night. So like 24 hours later, I found this guy <laughs> yeah, it, it's crazy. And it really was the perfect track. You know, it puts you on edge, right? It's almost like you didn't notice it. 
and then all of a sudden it was bringing this crescendo up and you didn't know why you were anxious, right? In those scenes where you you really have that violin in there. And then if you stop and listen, that's why you're anxious. That score is just undertoning that. And it just set it up perfectly. But I love the fact and, you know, that and, and he was at the, yeah, uh, and the his, festival, right? His name is Kinu Muse. And by the way, his number was defunct by the time I ended up contacting him to actually do the score two months later. So that's a whole other story of how I had to do this roundabout sleuthing detective work when this guy doesn't have social media and he's seems to be largely off the grid, <laughs> yeah. like even more so when he no longer had the cell phone number. So I had to do this crazy old school detective work to end up contacting him, getting in contact with him, found out, found one of his family members in a way, contacted his sister. And then finally he got back and he got in touch with me and he was like, let me think about doing it. Can I see the rough cut? And showed him the rough cut at that point. And he's, I've decided to do it. And I'm so glad he did because he knocked it so far out of the park with his score. His score was inc- absolutely incredible. Yeah, no, agree completely. So, yeah, so let's talk about some other things that have happened in 2023 at the Cannes Film Festival. The French film Anatomy of a Fall won the Palme d'Or and the top prize at the 76th Cannes Film Festival in France, which is the number one film festival in the world. French filmmaker Justine Triet, Trier, probably it's pronounced probably botching it still. She became the third woman to win the top honor at the Cannes Film Festival. So that's pretty cool. Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon came out. That was a big deal because I'm a huge Scorsese fanatic. You saw that in the theater, right? I did, yeah. And I forget the exact runtime, but I think it was over three hours. And It was almost like four hours. Was it three? It was like three hours and something like almost like, I think it was over... That's a good question. Let's find out the exact one time. I think it was three hours. If I had to remember, it was three hours and 40 minutes. Yeah, and I'm so proud that I didn't have to go to the bathroom the whole time. So <laughs> that, uh, that is an accomplishment. Absolutely, especially at this age. I can't say the same. So. <laughs> I, I tell you, Killers of the Flower Moon, I really liked it. I liked a couple things about it that, you know, when I look at that, and I, I tend to compare it like to The Irishman. I think that I like this film a little bit better. I think that all of Scorsese's movies at this point, right? They're, they're really an event. And I think it, it may have felt a little bit bloated to me at times, but overall, I thought it was a, a fun ride. I, I think De Niro has never been better. Yeah, De Niro is great in it. My gosh. I keep waiting for him to just start to fall into that stage where, oh, look, there's Robert De Niro on the screen. But two minutes in, you forget it's Robert De Niro and he's in this character that's different than any other character he's done, in my opinion, and you're lost in his performance, which is great. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's never been better. I don't know if it was better than Raging Bull or Taxi Driver, but it's it was great. I, yeah. I loved his performance in it. So maybe, maybe it's the best performance in his third act of his career. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, I think that's a fair assessment. The, the other thing I liked about it is I love seeing Leonardo playing somebody who is maybe not the smartest tack in sharpest tack, and he's got yellow teeth. So there's he's not the Leonardo in in most other films. And he plays that so well, he doesn't even fight it. He's not the hero, necessarily, that he often is in most of his films. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I really love the film. Despite its over three and a half hour running time, I never felt bored and was just interested in every moment of the film. 
Yeah, no, I agreed. I love how it opened up too, like when they're talking about the Osage, you know. Yes, uh, I did not know that story. I didn't uh, know that story either. And then I ended up reading the book, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is equally, it was compelling in a different way. And I remember striking a conversation. I started the Memarinex Cinema here in Westchester, and which is a really cool movie theater, by the way. I was blown away. It was the first time I'd been there. I was blown away by the movie theater. It was a newly renovated theater in Memarinex, New York which I highly implore anybody if they're, they got a chance to go there because it's got this like cool exposed brick and it's got really comfortable seats. And it was just like a really elevated viewing experience, which is important. Honestly, it's important how you watch a movie and the way it's presented. And if the sound and picture are good, if it's a, a theater that you're feel comfortable watching it in, sometimes there's theaters where you feel uncomfortable watching it in, but I'd, I care more about the sound and picture but uh, it's nice too that they have these awesome reclining seats and stuff. Yep. And Great. then and I remember striking a conversation because there's only like a handful. I went at the first earliest screening that I possibly could. For some reason, it opened a day earlier here than it did in I think most other places, and it opened up on a Thursday when I think the official opening date was on the Friday. And I caught a Thursday screening, like matinee screening. It was like the earliest screening I could. I think at two o'clock in the afternoon. I remember there was just a handful of people in the theater and I talked to this couple that was walking out. I was like, what did you guys think of the movie? And the guy said, the book was prose and the film was poetry. And I loved it. And I, and I thought that was a cool sort of assessment of the, the film. Oh, absolutely. That That's great. So yeah, shout out to Scorsese for doing it once again. The goat still has it in him. <laughs> absolutely. No question. What else? A big deal of what happened in 2023 is the WGA and SAG strikes that have happened concurrently. That's an unprecedented thing for how long those strikes lasted. So that's something we should talk about. Yeah, I wonder, because obviously it didn't impact much of what we were watching in 2023, right? But it's got to impact the content that's going to be put out 12 or 18 months from now. So you had that lull where things what things were on pause, new content wasn't created. Look, silver lining, maybe that's a good thing in one sense, right? The industry had to check itself, look in the mirror, you know, get some things straight. I, I am interested to see what does that mean for the content we'll be viewing later in 2024 20, and even into 25. But it was important for these things to happen. It was painful, I think, for lots that make a living in, in the industry, of course, especially the smaller players. But yeah, I'm curious your thought. Yeah, it's, I, I know what you mean. It's like the, the hornet's nest has been kicked a little bit as far as content and as far as will there be maybe more. I'm always interested in seeing more original IP. And one thing that I'm really fascinated with this whole topic, a lot of the points in the deal memos for both the SAG and the WGA contracts were the use of AI, like as far as actors, like is it okay for studios to use actors' likelihood in a sort of artificial intelligent generated manner? If that actor passes away, could they still be used? Or if they're no longer in the film and let's say they're in a sequel, that's really fascinating with me because it's like now AI has really developed and you know just chat gpt coming out last year and i have a friend that is uh part of um the wga and he was telling me how 
they wanted chat GPT to be used in the first draft of making a new TV show. So that's something that's mind blowing and really AI for years, people have been talking about what's it going to be like when AI enters the workforce and people's jobs being displaced. And now seeing our industry really being impacted by AI and people really talking about it as far as employment contracts and union contracts. And that's a big deal. Yeah. And I think it's a type of thing you can't ignore. The wave is there. It's coming. I think back to wondering how it felt if you were part of the crew on the first Star Wars and you were building all of those models, right? Those very realistic models and working on a practical level for those kinds of shots. As CGI came up, Clearly, that industry had to look in the mirror and say, a lot of these jobs are going to disappear, right? And ultimately, they got replaced with different jobs, right? The CGI industry blew up, and some people transitioned, and the new workforce came into that area. I don't know. The writing part is, I think, the scariest of all, and I think it's because it's the part that is the true creative element of storytelling, and I think protecting that is vital. The writer's strike ended in September with while the Screen Actors Guild, the SAG strike lasted through November 9th. After 146 days on strike, WGA members received an email on September 24th telling them that the WGA had reached a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. I think it was the longest strike in the history of the union. Yeah, I I believe so. And then it typically boils down to two things, right? Protecting the craft and and money, right? Ultimately, what's coming out of this is uh, a more fair share sharing of of revenue in one sense. Many feel not enough's been done, but but taking some progress is good. You know, how that changes the industries and what gets produced and, and how is yet to be seen. So I read one story, this was on Vulture, and it's a story that I'd heard before where there was a writer, Alex O'Keefe, who writes on the FX show called The Bear, which, by the way, is a fantastic, I know this is a yeah. film-focused podcast, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the show The Bear, huge fan of the show. And so it's crazy seeing what Alex O'Keefe wrote, what he quoted in The New Yorker. It's a very regular working-class existence, Alex O'Keefe. And that's something, Alex O'Keefe, So I read that he actually had to rent his tuxedo when the, or, but like he had to like scrape enough money to rent his tuxedo. He could barely afford to rent rent his tuxedo when the show was nominated for awards. Like basically had to put himself into debt, just getting the tux for the award show because that's something that I think a lot of people wouldn't expect. I think a lot of people that are not in the film and TV industry, they think that anybody that they see in the credits is probably doing financially really well, and that's not necessarily the case. So I think there's definitely a, a lot of justification that people had for for fighting for better treatment, more fair pay in the industry. Yeah, you, you mentioned, I think, Alfred Hitchcock earlier, and, and I'm trying to confirm in my head whether this quote is accurate attributed to him. He said the three most important things in making a movie is the script. I get his point there, right? It is first and foremost about the story and how you tell that story. Everything else becomes important ingredients to it. Yeah, it's ultra important. 
and Fran Drescher of the Nanny was the president of SAG. She made some powerful statements as well in the news. I thought she handled it pretty well. The whole uh, she's from my perspective, from an outside sort of not being a member of SAG, she seemed like she did a good job for the union. But um, I would love to hear from members of SAG, like some people in the leadership of SAG on the podcast to tell their whole perspective of the strike and kind of that's something I'd like to explore a little bit more perhaps. Yeah, and I've got a few friends that make their living acting and a member of SAG, Rich Lunello, who was the lead in my film. Shout out to Rich. uh, Yeah, and Rich actually had a great year last year creating his own short film, which is actually more of a spec for an episodic show and it's called Life Quest and Again, I talked to Rich often, and I know this impacted him last year in terms of the acting side of things. Part of the reason, I think, more and more actors are interested in getting into or writing their own stuff or getting into the producing. Again, just to, to have a little bit more control in some sense. Is there any other things that you want to touch upon on 2023? I think like yeah. some films that came out in 2020. All right, no, I'll let you I'll, go ahead. Sure. I'll tell you what I'm excited about that's alive and kicking and we, we talked about some of those big films, and I think we probably should talk a little bit about Barbie. But first, I, a number of films like Saltburn, Emerald Fennel. I was just and, thinking about Saltburn. Yeah. It was and, a crazy film. It was. And Promising Young Woman, that kind of came out of nowhere, in, in, from, for me anyway. And when I saw that film, I said, okay, I'm just going to go to whatever film she makes next. You know, It was automatic to me that I would just go. And then I go and see Saltburn. And did you in the theater? I did. Yeah, cool. saw it at Jake Bern- Jacob Burns Theater. And oh, nice. Also another good theater. Yeah, it's a great place to hang out and, and, and see great films. The, the third act of Saltburn, the wheels come off the cart, of course. And I think the, the first two-thirds of the film, relatively accessible for mass audience consumption, edgy, but okay, that, that third act... This is what I love about film, right? Throwing stuff at me that I've never seen before. The unexpected stuff. Love that. Again, I'm not saying that Saltburn ranks in my top 10, 20, 30 films of all time, but this is the kind of content I hope we never lose. Things that challenge us and come out and just are different. Well said, John. Yeah, that's. I, I love the production design. On Saltburn. Yeah, um, you get drawn in. you just like, you're lost in that world for two hours, and that's what it's about. And that's back to my father, right? It is an escape. Whether you have a good life, a bad life, or a mediocre life, going to the theater should be hitting the pause button on your life when you walk through the door and just being lost in a different yeah, space. absolutely. I, I say this many times on the podcast that I believe cinema is a hypnotic experience when it's at its best, certainly. Yeah, and, and maybe that's a good segue to another shout-out to uh, a film that I, I felt similarly about. Matter of fact, might be my favorite film of the year, and, and that's Poor Things. I originally saw uh, Lanthimos' uh, film uh, Dogtooth over a decade ago when it came out, and I said, this is bizarre. I don't really know what I just watched. And was uh, that, that was before The Lobster? He made yes. That? Yeah, it was. I haven't seen that one. I saw The Lobster. It was my first foray into his yeah. work. And, and Dogtooth is a foreign language film, so it's subtitled. I believe it's a, originally, I think it's Greek language. And it was an odd film, but at the end of the day, I see the same stuff in, in all his films, right? There's a rawness around sexuality and what's core to the human condition. But Poor Things, I, I again, it's not for everybody, 
But you've got this steampunk kind of atmosphere, the cinematography, the sets, everything was phenomenal. The story itself, just extract the story from it, it is a great story. Then you add in the creative storytelling, and I think it's a, it's a really strong film. Nice. I haven't seen it yet, but that's definitely high up on my list of things that I'm about to watch really soon. Yeah, and again, not necessarily for everybody, but then there's other films that I came across. The Menu, I thought, was really well done, a small film. I uh, like The Menu a lot, actually. Yeah, it was different. It was like, it's like a scenario that as a storyteller, you might drop on the whiteboard and say, yeah, but I don't know if this is a film, right? But then you see the execution and you're like, holy crap, that, that looked easy. And it really wasn't, right? It was a great story. The Menu, directed by Mark Mylod, who has, I know he's directed a bunch of episodes of Succession. Shout out to my sister, Laura, who worked in the costume department of Succession. Also another TV series, which was brilliant. Awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I loved, I, I also loved The Menu. And I, I just thought it was a really cool film that I saw in 2023. And I, I loved the performances by Rafe Fiennes and the whole, the rest of the crew, John Leguizamo's in it. Anya Taylor Joy, she was fantastic in it. Yep, and yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, there's an absurdity to that, but at the same time, there's some true terror uh, that's evoked in that film. And I, I used to be more of a horror film fan. I still am, but when I grew up, that's what I went to see. So I was I, I enjoyed Talk to Me, which I think is one of the better horror films that came out last year. Although I didn't see that many of them. I did go and see that because I heard good things about it. And the last comment I'll say is I don't typically watch a lot of movies at home, right? I'll watch some series at home, but I'll go to the theater for the films. I did watch Blackberry, and I was pleasantly surprised. A story about a company that started 20 years ago and the rise and fall might sound old, but the way they shot that and the acting, unique storytelling, and I was surprised. I looked it up. It was like a $5 million budget. <coughs> And my gosh, it played so much bigger. Nice. Oppenheimer. We should, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Oppenheimer. Sure. And then the Barbenheimer <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah, maybe we'll put the bow on it with Barbie, uh, yeah. pink bow. Yeah. So this is not my favorite genre, meaning a true story about a, a physicist. <laughs> yeah, physicist. <laughs> um, I'm, try I'm drawing a blank. What was that other film similar to it, but it was about the numbers and things like that? A Beautiful Mind. No, more recent. Oh. I'll, it'll come to me. Anyway, yeah. I went into Oppenheimer not thinking I would like it, right? And again, uh, pleasantly surprised, right? What I loved about it is it wasn't about the creation of the bomb, right? It, that wasn't the story. It was about the man. And of course, obviously now it's obvious to me, the title of the film is Oppenheimer. It's not the bomb. Um, so I think... I was excited to see this was about his life and the type of person he was. And I found it very interesting just seeing what they captured that era so well. And what was at stake was so massive. And yet the film hung out in the perception of this man's life. So I was engaged. And another long film, right? Another long film. I am a big Christopher Nolan fan for sure. I saw his first movie. Actually, the first Nolan movie that I saw that kind of blew me away back in the movie theater when I was pretty young, it was Memento. Oh, yes. Back in 2002, I saw it in the theater. 
and maybe 2001, I guess. But yeah, it just blew me away. I saw it at the Bronxville Cinemas, and I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. And that led me into a further rabbit hole of indie film and just maybe even wanting to be a filmmaker even more so because it just was like groundbreaking. Then I immediately sought out anything else. Nolan, I found that he did another film called Following. Somebody, I remember at a DVD store in the East Village was like, oh, you like Memento? He's like, this movie is even cooler. Yeah. It's called, and I don't know if it is, but but it was a, it was a cool discovery. It was a movie called Following, which was Nolan's first feature. Yep. And it felt like just discovering this cool kind of, underground kind of thing there was this black and white feature that was shot on super film so you know i'll i'll see anything that nolan does in the theater because i've been an early christopher nolan apologist yeah. <laughs> and oppenheimer i didn't know what to expect really i was definitely looking forward to seeing it but at the same time i didn't it's not like the bar was ultra sky high I loved inception inception might be my favorite nolan film and I, I even like Tenet. A lot of people ripped on Tenet, but I personally liked it. And I love the performances by in Oppenheimer by Killian Murphy and Florence Pugh and Robert Downey Jr. I thought it was a great Downey performance for sure. I thought the dynamics between Killian Murphy and Robert Downey's character I thought were really interesting, actually. And just that whole Nolan-esque style thing that he did with that scene with Albert Einstein in yeah. it where... You know, like at the end, um, it's like you're seeing this Jahari window kind of thing. Like you're seeing the scene from different perspectives and different points of view. I, I thought that was super cool. Um, interesting performance by Matt Damon, actually, you know. Um, I, and I liked even some of the more cameo kind of performances that we saw from some of the other characters like um, Josh, Josh Peck and Jack Quaid and Benny Safdie, I thought that was cool that he was in the movie, and David Crumholtz was an actor that I like seeing on screen. And yeah, over overall, I liked the film for sure. It was, it, I think, it was a little different than probably would have what I was expecting. It was more of a character-driven sort of piece than the kind of film that I was expecting. When I thought maybe it might be more of a Dunkirk kind of style film, but yeah. uh, it was cool. I, yeah, I, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah, you just remind me of something. I think one of my favorite things about the film was uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s performance. Yeah. I thought the arc of that character and the way he played it, he comes apart at the seams you know, throughout that arc, and he does it in a way that is rare to see. So I thought he did a great job. I don't know. I was thinking about Oscars and trying to think about, was that an Oscar-worthy performance? I just know that's what I remember there. And before we, we started this morning, I looked up Vegas odds, right, on Best Picture and to nice. see what was running. And, and it's interesting because Oppenheimer's running away with it right now. I think it's uh, less than even money that Oppenheimer's going to win Best Picture, where Killers of the Flower Moon is about two to one. I, uh, I would say... If, if it were me, I'd first of all, I'd like to see Killers of the Flower Moon take it. For me, that's uh, my more fit, not just because I like Scorsese, and I love Scorsese, but it's not just because of that, because I think you can't just put automatic assumptions on a film. Like, I always try to, I was, after watching Killers of the Flower Moon, I, I try to look at it from the lens of, well, if Martin Scorsese didn't direct this film and just somebody came out of the woodwork and just made this film, would I still love the film? 
And the answer would be yes. If Christopher Nolan didn't direct Oppenheimer, would I still like the film? I would like the film, but I don't know. To me, what I put a lot of currency into is repeat watchability. Maybe that's not a fair assessment because I haven't watched either film more than once. But the film that I would like to watch more than once more is Killers of the Flower Moon. And maybe if I watch them each both twice, I might say, oh, I loved Oppenheimer even more a second time than Killers of the Flower Moon. But right now at the moment, if given a choice right now, would I watch Killers of the Flower Moon again or Oppenheimer? It would definitely be Flower Moon. Oh, I think so too. Killers of the Flower Moon is a much, much fun, more fun ride. It's an exciting, fun ride with twists and turns and a good old fashioned movie. Oppenheimer is a little bit more serious. And it's funny on his odds, right? Poor Things is sitting at seven to one. So I think what, and since that's maybe my favorite film of the year, I'd, I'd love them to have a new category called Best Film Over Three Hours. Oh. And that well, would be Oppenheimer against Killers of the Flower Moon. And then this way, Poor Things would have a shot. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. All right. So, yeah, Oppenheimer, and I guess we'll discuss Barbie, which was a phenomenon directed by Greta Gerwig. Top grossing film, $1.4 billion. Cool, fun fact, I saw Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach in a restaurant. They were eating dinner next to us years ago in the city. My wife and I went out to dinner at this restaurant in the West Village, and they were, who was sitting right next to us is Greta Gerwig and... Noah Baumbach. That's great. I am a, a huge, small Italian restaurant. That, that is awesome. I am a huge fan of Greta's. And I first found out about her was Francis Ha when I went and saw that film. And I think that was my first foray as well to her. And then I saw her in some mumblecore films directed by guys like Joe Swanberg. There was a movie called Kissing on the Mouth and LOL. Like she was in these super low budget. When I say low budget, like no budget, $5,000 mini DV recorded films. Oh, interesting. I got to look for those. Yeah. And I think Lady Bird then came out and I, I read a lot about her at that point and saw a lot of interviews with her about how her style and how she did that and behind the scenes on Lady Bird. So I knew she'd be a favorite of mine going forward. I did not see Little Women. So that was probably her first big box office or, or big budget film that she got a chance to work on. But I did go see Barbie and I'm a little bit mixed on it, and I'll share my thoughts. I, Frankly, I was expecting something a little bit more in a sense of, and, and part of the problem is my son put this in my head when he had seen it. He compared the movie to Elf, and I hadn't thought about it, but these two main characters from Make Believe Worlds are forced to come into the real world to solve a problem or find something out or get something done, right? And where Elf is almost a perfect film in terms of, acting and writing and, and story, right? I think Barbie was a different type of film, but I felt like I was watching some skits that were threaded together a little bit more. So while I liked the film and, and I loved the creativity that she used in, in bringing that film out, I, I didn't see that film. as I was looking for a little bit more of Greta in the film, a little bit more of an edge to certain parts of it, but th those were my thoughts. So my thoughts were, I, I was stunned at that opening sequence, how it was a homage to Stanley Kubrick in 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I was talking to a friend and I even wrote a review that I, I had online on the film and, 
And one thing I did say is that, oh my gosh, commercially the success of this film and and what will it do for uh, other women filmmakers? And most importantly to me personally, I think, what may it do for the theaters, right? And when I would go to the movies and Barbie was playing at that theater, seeing the people lining up to see that film dressed in pink, really getting into it. It's phenomenal. So I'm excited about what Greta has done for the film industry, uh, for women in the film industry, but also for theaters and, and that whole experience of going out with people and, and enjoying uh, a story together. I think it's as you know, oldest time, right? That concept, uh, cavemen were doing it in, in caves, right? Writing on the walls. But seeing that level of community come together again in a theater, I have not seen that in a long time. And I, I've just hats off to her. A phenomenal accomplishment and excited to see what she does next. For sure. All right. Now we're going to segue into our second portion of the podcast where we're going to wrap it up talking about a couple of John's favorite film scenes of all time. And I know one is you were telling a story earlier about how you went to see The Exorcist when you were. 12 years old? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, it would be 12. And it was just me and my father, and we went and saw the film, and... Where'd you see it? Oh... Uh, the Bronx? I, I, no, I think it was... I, I think it was in Pelham. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, a, it was an old theater in Pelham. Is that uh, where the picture house is? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's where it was. Now that you bring that up. So we lived in the Bronx, and I remember going to the Pelham Theater a lot for some reason, but... Did you live on Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, or...? No, we had moved, so we were in the Belmont section, right off of East Chester Road. We lived on Grace Avenue. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Here's what I remember. First of all, from the opening scenes and the music and that the, the shadows, of course, of the priest at the doorway and the mist and everything else, I was hook, line, and sinker from the, the beginning. But I will tell you this, despite the some outrageous scenes in that film, right, when she's completely... Uh, taken over in her bed and the pea soup and all that, that was not the scene that stood out for me. It's the scene where Reagan, the girl, walks down the steps during her mother's dinner party and she just is in a trance. And you've got all these socialites around a piano doing a sing-along and, and everyone stops and just looks at her and they're amused like you might be if a little girl can, wakes up in the middle of the night and crashes the party. But all of a sudden, Reagan just stares at this astronaut, which is one of the guests, and says, you're going to die up there. And then it cuts to the floor, and she pees on the floor, on the carpet. And there was something so unnerving to me about that, and the look at the partygoer's face and her mother's face and the confusion, right? And she just stares at him and delivers that line. It was bone chilling for me. So anyway, that yeah, has stuck a, with me forever. It's a super visceral scene. Yeah, good uh, good call. It is. It is, yeah. More recently, if we were to look, I'd say a few things stand out. This is almost too easy, but Jojo Rabbit, I love that film. And there is that scene, of course, where, and spoiler alerts, right, for those that haven't seen it, you may want to turn the volume down. But there's a scene where the Jojo, the young boy, comes upon his mother hanging in the square and he sniffles a bit and he goes over and, and ties her shoelaces while her feet are dangling. And it's a callback to how she took care of him. But there's a heartbreaking aspect to the visual, but also a lot about what it means for Jojo, who has got to grow up. That's there. I've got a couple of others, but I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip to, you know, my favorite scene. And it is the first scene in Inglorious Bastards. And I checked, you know, I think it runs 19 minutes. 
and I wasn't sure um, if I took a breath that entire 19 minutes. So maybe I broke some breath-holding record when I watched that film in the theater because that first scene in the cabin, out there in the field, I think you see Tarantino really deliver an homage to his love for cinema right there. The, the tension, yeah. the characters, the simple words that are delivered and how they're delivered. Uh, I don't know that I've ever felt that kind of emotion or feeling for that long in a film, right? You, you get a minute or two in, in other scenes, but for a full 18, 19 minutes to be holding your breath and just motionless. It's absolutely incredible. I love that scene as well. And this is, I think at this point, it's officially the most reference scene on this podcast. Shout out to Christina Richardson, <laughs> who also referenced Inglorious Bastards and definitely somebody else has too. And I apologize for not remembering exactly who also referenced exactly this first scene. It's an incredible scene. I love the performance performances from Christoph Waltz and the guy that played the owner of the house and um, how they switch from speaking in French and Chris, that's such a Tarantino ism of just like the banality of kind of, Oh, I'm just here for just as a formality. And may I switch from speaking in French to English, Monsieur, like asking him permission to do that. Yeah. And just the drinking of the milk is just incredible. Uh, yeah. It's an incredible scene and yeah. heart wrenching at the same time as well. Yeah, and Tarantino doesn't let go uh, from that point forward because even though parts of the rest of that film are a little bit over the top, by the way, one of my favorite films, you get to that Ratskeller scene where they're down below drinking, melding in with their enemies, the tension in that room for that scene, playing the card game, all of that. It's similar to that first scene. It's shorter, but it, it, it has the same exact kind of effect. It's such an impactful scene. I saw that I saw Inglorious Bastards in two thousand nine with my brother Mike at the Cross County movie theater in Yonkers and I just remember it just blew me away seeing that and the way that it opened. It was just such an epic opening. And only Tarantino could mix humor the way he does in such a specific way. Like at the end of the scene when the one daughter is getting away and she's running in the field, spoiler alert. And then Christoph Waltz is shooting his gun and he runs out of bullets and he's au revoir, Shoshana. Like it's, <laughs> it's just such a funny moment in such a darkly messed up scene, right? It is. And again, I think what you see there a lot of is Tarantino's own upbringing and his love for film and working at the video store and the stuff he watched. Because I saw a lot of the films my father had me watch in the 40s and 50s just on TV, Channel 9, Channel 11, all the reruns similar kind of style stuff right whether they're westerns or not i think it's great stuff nice john where could people follow along with you and your work yeah so as far as social media really instagram is where i, I hang out from a, a, a film perspective it's manatopia films and uh, you can find me there again i'm excited about the year coming up collaborating with more folks like you Zev, and and doing some more tour storytelling with folks that i've met along the way on the journey excited and thanks for having me here today and looking back and again would love to also look forward and i think we've got an interesting 2024 ahead nice thanks for being on john Thank and you. Thanks for Andy for producing behind the scenes there. All right. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, yeah it's so pretty cool that Andy, that you were on set with Christopher Nolan on The Dark Knight yeah. Rises. Yeah, it was crazy. It was a great experience just to see like natural talking to the, he does it so effortlessly. 
so effortlessly it doesn't look like he's even doing work it just, just the way he, like, uh, nolan communicates and directs his actors yeah, the way he communicates and directs he just goes hey so do this and then you guys are gonna do this it was such an intense scene it's, you see the effort that's put in between like just directing and it's, he does it so seamlessly and it's just amazing because it, it came out great in the end but uh, just seeing that in person is wow. This guy's a master, right? Man. He really is. But, that's how I felt like when I first saw Memento. I was like, wow, this is really something special here. Yeah, with Memento, turned storytelling on its head a bit. And it's interesting to see that. And others have done similar ways of storytelling, but I, I think he did a great job there. He did a great job. I think his movies are always Now, in the scene you saw, or the when you were on set seeing a lot of the stuff, then you actually saw it in the finished film. That must have been very strange for you, right? Because how different did it look? And, and you know, what was that like? For we sat in front of the Trump building right there on, on in, in New York. So we did multiple scenes in different angles. So just seeing like the scene, like the fighting choreography that he actually directed in different angles and, it, and like to see the finished product, it was, yeah. it was so good. And just to let you know that, finished product Christopher Nolan did it so effortlessly right right but it created it was something so great in the end it was like wow oh my god look at this and then like you think it'll take so much effort or and it's no he would just go on set say the direction talk a few with each actor go back amazing you know, and, and do you think it's because he had it all worked out ahead of all time out all yeah worked out he yeah. would tell Anne Hathaway, like, okay, you're going to ride the motorcycle here. Just ride it down the street while the thugs are over here lined up. And His level of preparation was unbelievable, you're saying? Uh, it's, it, it is unbelievable. It is. It, but, uh, yeah, Christopher Nolan is one of the great ones, I would definitely say. Nice. All right. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, John. And wishing everybody, all our listeners, happy and Healthy 2024. Likewise. Happy Same. New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 